Do you mean to say that as the time will ever come when the gentry will mix up on equal terms with the likes of us? demanded the man behind the moat scornfully. Oh no, replied Lecture. When we get socialism, there won't be any people like us because everybody will be civilised. The man behind the moat did not seem very satisfied with this answer and told the others that he could not see anything to laugh at. Right, is there any more questions? cried Philpot. Because now's your chance to get some of your own back, if you don't all speak at once, that is. Well, I should like to know who's going to do all the dirty work, said Slime. If everyone's allowed to choose his own trade, well, who'd be fool enough to choose to be a scavenger, a sweep, a dustman, a sewerman? Nobody would want to do such a job as them, and everyone would be off to the softer jobs, wouldn't they? Yeah, cool, said Crass, eagerly clutching at this last straw. The thing sounds all right till he comes to look into it. But it's never going to work. Well, it would be very easy to deal with any difficulty of that sort, replied Barrington. If it were found that too many people were desirous of pursuing certain callings, it would be known that the conditions attached to those kinds of work were unfairly easy as compared to other lines. So the conditions in those trades will be made even more severe. A higher degree of skill will be required. If we found that too many persons wish to be doctors and architects and engineers and so forth, we would increase the severity of the examinations. This would scare away all but the most gifted and the most enthusiastic. And should thus at one stroke we reduce the number of applications and secure the very best men for the work. And we should have better doctors and better architects and better engineers than before. Now, as regards those disagreeable tasks which there was difficulty in obtaining volunteers, well, we would adopt the opposite means. Suppose that six hours was the general thing and we found that we could not get any sewer men. Well, we would reduce the hours of labour in that department to four, or if necessary, to two, in order to compensate for the disagreeable nature of the work. Another way out of such difficulties would be to have a separate division of the industrial army to do all such work, and make it obligatory for every man to put in his first year of state service as a member of this corps. And there'd be no hardship in that. Everybody gets the benefit of such work, and there'd be no injustice in requiring everyone to do his share. And this would have the effect also of stimulating invention. It'll be to everyone's interest to think out means of doing away with such kinds of work. And there'll be no doubt that most of it will be done by machinery, or some other way. A few years ago, the only way to light up the streets of the town was to go round to each separate gas lamp and light each jet, one at a time. And now, we press a few buttons, 
and we light up the town with electricity. In the future, we'll probably be able to press a button and just flush the sewers out. I say, what about religion, said Slime? I suppose there won't be no churches nor chapels. We'll all have to be atheists. Everybody will be perfectly free to enjoy their own opinions and to practice any religion they like. But no religion or sect will be maintained by the state. If any congregation or body of people wish to have a building for their own exclusive use as a church or a chapel or a lecture hall, it will be supplied to them by the state on the same terms as those upon which dwelling houses will be supplied. The state will construct the special kind of building and the congregation will have to pay the rent and the amount to be based on the cost of construction, in paper money, of course. And as far as the embellishment or decoration of such places was concerned, there will, of course, be nothing to prevent the members of the congregation, if they wish, from doing any such work as that themselves in their own spare time, of which there will be plenty. And if everybody's got to do their share of the work... Hey, where's the minister of the congregation going to come from then? Well, there would be at least uh, three ways out of that difficulty. First, ministers' religion could be drawn from the ranks of the veterans, that's men over 45 years old, who have completed their term of state service. Now, you must remember that these will not be worn-out wrecks, as too many of the working classes are at that age now. They will have had good food and clothing, and good general conditions all their lives, and consequently, they'll be in the very prime of life. They'll be younger than many of us are now at 30, and they'll be the ideal men for positions that we're speaking of, all well-educated in their youth, and all will have plenty of leisure for self-culture during the years of their state service, and they will have had additional recommendation that their congregations will not be required to pay anything for their services. And there's another way. If a congregation wishes to retain the full-time services of a young man whom they thought especially gifted, but who had not completed his term of state service, well, they could secure him by paying the state for his services. Thus the young man would still remain in state employment and he would still continue to receive his pay from the National Treasury, and at the age of 45 he would be entitled to his pension like any other worker. And after that the congregation would not have to pay the state anything. And a third way, as it seems to me, the uh, possibly the most respectable way, would be for the individual in question to act as minister or pastor or lecturer or whatever it is, to the congregation without seeking to get out of doing his share of the state service. The hours of obligatory work would be so short and the work so light that he would have abundance of leisure to prepare his orations without sponging on his co-religionists. Here, here, said Arlo. Of course, said Barrington, it would not only be congregations of Christians which could adopt any of these methods, it might possibly be a congregation 
of agnostics, for instance. They might want a separate building or to maintain a lecturer. Here, what the hell's an agnostic? demanded Bundy. Here, an agnostic, said the man behind the moat, is a bloke what don't believe nothing, unless he can see it with his own eyes. All these details, continued the speaker, of the organisation and affairs and work of the Cooperative Commonwealth are things which do not concern us at all. They have merely been suggested by different individuals as showing some ways in which these things could be arranged. The exact methods to be adopted would be decided upon by the opinion of the majority when the work is being done. Meantime, what we have to do is to insist upon the duty of the state to provide productive work for the unemployed and the state feeding of the school children and the nationalisation or socialisation of railways and land and the trusts and all the public services which are still in the hands of private companies. And if you wish to see these things done, then you have to cease from voting for the Liberal and Tory sweaters, shareholders of companies, lawyers, aristocrats and capitalists. And you must fill the House of Commons with revolutionary socialists, that is, with men who are in favour of completely changing the present system. And in the day that you do that, you will have solved the poverty problem. No more tramping the streets begging for a job, no more hungry children at home, and no more broken boots and ragged clothes, no more women and children killing themselves with painful labour while strong men stand idly by. But joyous work and joyous leisure for all. Right, are there any more questions? cried Philpot. Here, is it true, said Easton, that socialists intend to do away with the army and the navy? Yep, it is true. Socialists believe in international brotherhood and peace. Nearly all wars are caused by profit-seeking capitalists seeking new fields of commercial exploitation and by aristocracies and aristocrats who make it the means of glorifying themselves in the eyes of deluded common people. You must remember that socialism is not only a national but an international movement and when it's realised that there'll be no possibility of war and we shall no longer need to maintain an army and a navy or to waste a lot of labour building warships or manufacturing arms and ammunition. All those people who are now employed will then be at liberty to assist in the great work of producing the benefits of civilization, creating wealth and knowledge and happiness for themselves and for others. Socialism means peace on earth and goodwill to all mankind. But in the meantime, we know that the people of other nations are not all yet socialists. And we do not forget that in foreign countries, just the same as in Britain, there are large numbers of profit-seeking capitalists who are so destitute of humanity that if they thought that it could be done successfully and with profits to themselves, they would not scruple to come here to murder and to rob. 
we don't forget that in foreign countries the same as here, there are plenty of so-called Christian bishops and priests, always ready to give their benediction to any such murderous projects and to blasphemously pray to the supreme being to help his children to slay each other like wild beasts. And knowing and remembering all of this, then we realise that until we've done away with capitalism, aristocracy and anti-Christian clericalism, then it's our duty to be prepared to defend our homes and our own native land. And therefore, we are in favour of maintaining national defensive forces in the highest possible state of efficiency. But that does not mean that we're in favour of the present system of organising those forces. We do not believe in conscription, and we do not believe that the nation should continue to maintain a professional standing army to be used at home for the purposes of butchering men and women of the working classes in the interests of a handful of capitalists, as has been done at Featherstone and Belfast, or to be used abroad to murder and rob the people of other nations. Socialist advocates advocate the establishment of a national citizen army for defensive purposes only. We believe that every able-bodied man should be compelled to belong to this force and to undergo a course of military training, but without making him into a professional soldier or taken away from civil life, depriving him of the rights of citizenship or making him subject to military law which is only another name for tyranny and despotism. This uh, citizen army could be organised on somewhat similar lines to the present territorial force, with certain differences. For instance, we do not believe, as our present rulers do, that wealth and aristocratic influence are the two most essential qualifications for an efficient officer. We believe that all ranks should be obtainable by any man, no matter how poor, who is capable of passing the necessary examinations, that there should be no expense attached to those positions which the government grant or the pay is not sufficient to cover. The officers could be appointed in any one of several ways. They might be elected by the men, and they would have to that they'd have to command, for example and the only qualification required being that they had passed those examinations. Or they might be appointed according to merit, the candidate obtaining the highest number of marks of the examinations is to have first call on any vacant post, and so on, in order of merit. We believe in the total abolition of courts martial. Any offence against discipline should be punishable by the ordinary <coughs> civil law. No member of the citizens' army being deprived of the rights of the citizen. Well, what about the Navy then? cried several voices. Well, nobody wants to interfere with the Navy except to make its organisation more democratic, the same as that of the citizen army and to protect its members from tyranny by entitling them to be tried in a civil court 
for any alleged defence. It's been proved that if the soil of this country were scientifically cultivated, it's capable of producing sufficient to maintain a population of a hundred millions of people. Our present population is only about 40 millions. But so long as the land remains in the possession of persons who refuse to allow it to be cultivated, we shall continue to be dependent on other countries for our food supply. And so long as we are in that position, and so long as foreign countries are governed by liberal and Tory capitalists, we shall need the navy to protect our overseas commerce from them. If we had a citizen army such as I have mentioned, of nine or ten millions of men, and if the land of this country was properly cultivated, we should be invincible at home. No foreign power would ever be mad enough to attempt to land their forces on our shores. But they would now be able to starve us all to death in a month if it were not for the navy. It's a sensible, therefore, and creditable position, isn't it? Concluded Barrington. Even in time of peace, thousands of people standing idle and tamely starving in their own fertile country because a few landlords forbid them to cultivate it. Are there any more questions? demanded Philpot, breaking a profound long silence. Would any uh, liberal or Tory capitalist like to get up into the pulpit and oppose the speaker then? The chairman went on, finding that no one responded to his appeal for questions. The silence continued. Well, as there are no more questions, and no one won't get up into the pulpit, it's now my painful duty to call upon someone to move a resolution. Well, Mr Chairman, said Arlo, I may say that when I came on this firm, I was a liberal, but through listening to several lectures by Professor Owen and attending the meetings on the ill at Windley and reading the books and the pamphlets which I brought here from this same Owen, I came to the uh, conclusion some time ago that it's a mug's game for us to vote for capitalists, whether they call themselves Liberals or Tories. They're all alike when they're working for them. Now I defy any man to say what's the difference between a Liberal and a Tory employer. There's none. Yeah, and they can't be. They're both sweaters, and they've both got to be, or they wouldn't be able to compete with each other. And since that's what they are, I say... Well, it's a mug's game for us to vote them into Parliament to rule over us and make laws that we've got to abide by, whether we like it or not. There's nothing to choose between them. And the proof of it is that it's never made much difference to us which party was in or which party was out. It's quite true that in the past, both of them have passed good laws, but... They've only done it when public opinion was so strongly in favour of it that they knew there was no getting out of it and that it was a toss-up which side did it. Well, that's been my way of looking at things lately. Almost made up my mind. Never to vote no more or to trouble myself about politics at all. Because, well, 
although I could see that there was no sense in voting for Liberal or Tory. At the same time, I must admit, I couldn't make out how socialism was going to help us. But the explanation of it, which Professor Barrington here has given us this afternoon, has been a bit of an eye-opener for me. And with your permission, I should like to move as a resolution that it is the opinion of this meeting that socialism is the only remedy for unemployment and poverty. The conclusion of Harlow's address was greeted with loud cheers from the socialists. But most of the liberal and tyro supporters of the present system maintained a rather sulky silence. Well, I'll second that resolution, said Easton. Yeah, and I'll lay a bob both ways, remarked Bundy. The resolution was then put, and though the majority were against it, the chairman was declared that it was carried unanimously. By this time, the violence of the storm had in a great measure abated, but as the rain was still falling, it was decided not to attempt to resume work that day. Besides, it would have been too late, even if the weather had cleared up. "'Well, perhaps it's just as well it has rained,' remarked one man, "'because if it hadn't, some of us might have got the sack tonight. "'As there is, there'll be hardly enough for us all to do tomorrow, "'and Saturday morning, even if it is fine.' "'This was true. "'Nearly all of the outside was finished, "'and what remained to be done was ready for the final coat. "'Inside, all there was to do was to colour the walls,' and give them the woodwork of the kitchen and the scullery, the last coat of paint. It was inevitable, unless the firm had some other work for them to do somewhere else, it was inevitable that there would be a great slaughter on Saturday. Now, nah, said Philpot, assuming what he meant to be the manner of a school teacher addressing children, I want to, uh, you all to make a special effort to get here, very early in the morning, say about four o'clock, and then what does the most work tomorrow? We'll get a prize on Saturday. Ha! <laughs> what will it be? The sack? inquired Arlo. Yes, replied Philpot. And not only will you get a prize for good conduct tomorrow, but if you all keep on working like we've been doing till lately, you're too old and uh, too worn out to do any more. And then you'll be allowed to go to a nice workhouse for the rest of your lives, and each of you will be given a title. Pauper. And then they all laughed. Although the majority of them had mothers and fathers or other near relatives who had already succeeded to that title, they still laughed. And as they were going home, Crass paused at the gate, and pointing up to the large gable at the end of the house, he said to Philpot, Here, you want the longest ladder there, the 65 for that, tomorrow. Philpot looked up at the gable. It was very high. <laughs>